0: as we head to Romans 3, a bit of framing just to get our bearings. So far, Romans 2 and 3 have established a problem. Capital S sin has defaced creation and sin has enslaved humanity and by extension Israel. Humanity was supposed to be the means of fixing the capital S sin that had defaced creation. And so We're going to be in verses 21 to 26, but before I read how NT Wright write has translated those in some really helpful ways, I want to summarize. There's potential. The story, according to Paul, is that humanity had the potential to fill the world with God's goodness, but failed. There are promises. God made a covenant with Israel in order to accomplish this potential. God has to be faithful to the covenant. Whenever I explain a covenant to kids, I call it a super promise because although kids understand that promises ought not be broken, they have to understand that God in particular will not ever break God's promises. In order for God then to be righteous in the biblical sense, God has to deal with sin and has to do it through humanity and has to do it through Israel. Even though Humans have also been defaced by sin, along with everything else. Originally, the idea was that Israel would have Torah, and it would be like a beacon. Live this way, and you would shine. That would be the means by which they could fill the world with God's goodness. But now they've come to a point where it's a mirror. Look at how you are so not what you could have been. Look at how you were invited Israel had a vocation, you see, but they've come to the point where they've made it more of a privilege. They assumed it was theirs, no matter how they lived, no matter how they related to the wider world. And so the potential is completely unfulfilled. To put this a different way, here's the question. If Abraham's family is now unfaithful to the task of filling the world with God's goodness, what about God's faithfulness? Is God trapped in breaking God's own promise to Abraham because they've messed it up so much? Of course not, Paul says. But there is this secondary question of how God is going to get out of this mess. And it's actually not just Paul, but a fair cross-section of contemporary Jewish writers together who were wondering what God was going to do about keeping God's promises in light of humanity's immense failure to live up to its potential. N.T. Wright puts it this way. God made the world in the first place. Would it turn out to be a gigantic blunder? In other words, there's a problem. Despite humanity's potential and the immense promises of God, we've come to a problem. How will God keep their promises and stay faithful to those promises when the means by which the promises were going to be fulfilled, humans, have failed to be who they were supposed to be. And just to be sure we're clear about something, before I read today's passage, the problem I'm referring to, this one that Paul has been detailing so far in Romans, it's not primarily a problem for humans. It's primarily seen as a problem for God. So the question that Paul is most trying to deal with is not how can humans get to heaven when all have sinned? Instead it is, How can God be faithful to creation when God's chosen messengers, people, have failed to deliver the message? It almost seems like God will need to choose between being faithful to creation, who deserves to be filled with God's goodness, or being faithful to humans, especially Israel, who God promised would be the means by which creation would be filled with goodness and justice. But God can't choose one or the other. If God only chooses one or the other, then God is unrighteous, unfaithful. God made both sets of promises. Both sets of promises need to be fulfilled, even though it seems impossible. This is all what we need to have in mind as we approach the specific verses we have today. This is Romans 3, 21 to 26, as translated by Tom Wright. But now... Quite apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bore witness to it, God's covenant justice has been displayed. God's covenant justice comes into operation through the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah for the benefit of all who have faith. For there's no distinction, all sinned and fell short of God's glory. And by God's grace, they are freely declared to be in the right, to be members of the covenant through the redemption which is found in the Messiah Jesus. God put Jesus forth as the place of mercy by means of his blood. He did this to demonstrate his covenant justice through the passing over of sins committed beforehand. This was to demonstrate his covenant justice in the present time. That is, that he himself is in the right, that he declares to be in the right, everyone who trusts in the faithfulness of Jesus. So humans have potential. And God made promises, but God's got a problem. Us. And what is so interesting, as I mentioned before, is that while Paul readily believes that we too have a problem as slaves to sin, Paul's real sense is that God alone has to deal with certain elements of this predicament. The beginning of the section introduces God's solution to this. Jesus, who was faithful to the plan where humans in Israel weren't. Jesus lives up to humanity's potential and is able, therefore, to fix the problem in a way that keeps the promises. Jesus's faithfulness establishes God's righteousness. Repeating again, verse 22, God's covenant justice comes into operation through the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah for the benefit of all who has faith. By God's grace, they are to freely declare to be in the right, to be members of the covenant through the redemption, which is found in the Messiah, Jesus. Jesus solves the problem of God having to keep their promises in order to be righteous by himself being faithful. And this is a huge key in this little snippet of Paul's letter. The faith in versus faithfulness of question. You see, many of the English translations of this section say that God is doing this through faith in Jesus the Messiah, meaning it'd be our faith. But N.T. Wright is making the case that it is far more accurate to Paul's intention to focus most of all on the faithfulness of Jesus to us. So is it our faith in him or his faithfulness to God and humanity? In a way, yes. But also, This happens in order. Jesus' faithfulness goes first. This is actually not the first time that God has chosen to be faithful to humanity right in the face of human faithlessness. Hebrews 11 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance. Abraham went without knowing where he was going, and even when he reached the land God promised him he lived there by faith, for he was like a foreigner living in tents. But if you are familiar with Abraham's story, you might remember that there's a part of the story in Egypt, you'd find it in Genesis 12, where Abraham becomes so afraid for his own life that he makes his wife Sarah lie to save his own hide. That was faithless, but God was faithful. God kept the promise to Abraham, but God also was faithful to Sarah in protecting her you see in what I call the sister-wife lie. How although Abraham is lauded later as a hero of faith, it wasn't because he actually was faithful all the time. Abraham managed to keep his trust in the God who could be faithful, even when Abraham was utterly faithless. Jesus' resurrection then, it is not the first time God's faithfulness won the day for humanity's benefit. It's just the most splendid. Paul then tells us how Jesus' faithfulness results in a few things. One, God passes over past sins. Two, God sets humans and Israel free from capital S, sin. Three, God begins the renewal of creation from sin, all of which is accomplished because a representative of humanity is the faithful one, meaning that God has kept God's promise to partner with humanity in order to deal with sin. Because this faithful one is an Israelite, God has kept their promise to Israel to have them be the means by which the whole world would come to know who God is. Coming back to the passage again, Paul writes that God put Jesus forth as the place of mercy by means of his blood. God did this to demonstrate his covenant justice through the passing over of sins committed beforehand. This was to demonstrate his covenant justice in the present time. That is, that God himself is in the right And that God declares to be in the right, everyone who trusts in the faithfulness of Jesus. So in this last little section, we see a reference to the temple, specifically the mercy seat. It's the place God came with grace-filled presence to the people. Now Jesus is the one who is the presence of God with us. What God did in the temple, God continues to do now, coming among us in Jesus who offers himself to humanity all the way to death and through life on the other side. And then this section uses a legal metaphor. A legal metaphor of being put in the right. Understanding this metaphor is connected to understanding that we are put in the right, not because of our trust, but because of the faithfulness of Jesus. So to revisit this metaphor that you might be familiar with, if you know this passage, Paul has this sense that one way sin impacts the world is that humanity comes to the court guilty. The accuser can then say, certainly they can't escape their guilt. And yet, the judge has the power and authority because of who they are to not simply pardon humanity, dismiss the suit. The judge doesn't just let them off the hook, but can actually say, I find in their favor, they are in the right. Humanity can leave with a fundamentally changed status as it relates to this issue of being bound by sin. And all of this happens through the faithfulness of Jesus. This is what Jesus' death and resurrection has accomplished in Paul's mind. By accepting undeserved execution, by his blood bringing him to the mercy seat, he is killed because he's faithful to the mission. And all of this makes it possible for anyone to be in the right. It is the faithfulness of Jesus that creates all of this. Now, is the response for humanity to also then have faith, to trust? Yes. But it is not our faith that makes this happen. It is the faithfulness of the God who has always been faithful to us. God's righteousness is shown in God doing what they promised to do. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are unfaithful, God remains faithful. For God cannot deny who they are. We are at times the unfaithful children of a most faithful God. And that faithfulness always calls us back. Makes faithfulness possible for us. Not a faithfulness where we strive for perfection. Some of us can get stuck into a cycle of trying hard, feeling like we fail, becoming exhausted or resentful, feeling guilty, gearing up and trying hard again, striving for perfection. Faithfulness is not that, nor is it performance, making sure that what we do is the right kinds of things that everyone looks for and wants to see, that all the external markers of our life with God are just right. Faithfulness is not that either. Faithfulness is more like per. Participation. The invitation is always open, always has been, that we get to participate in what humanity was made for all along, reflecting God's character, helping the world work in a way that matches who God is. And so may you know that Jesus has chosen, delighted in being faithful to you, no matter how faithless you have been. May you find This week, you are able to respond not by trying for perfection or worrying about performance, but by accepting the invitation to participate, to co-labor with God for the restoration of all things. In the name of our triune God, amen.